Robotech, The McKinney Project, celebrating the legacy of the Robotech novels with your host, JT. Hey guys and girls, welcome to a brand new spanking episode of Robotech The McKinney Project, a celebration of the Robotech novels as written by New York Times bestselling authors Brian Daly and James Lucino, known collectively in the Robotech universe as Jack McKinney. Our official website is www.robotechnovels.com, where you'll find the show notes for each and every one of our episodes. Our official email address is robotechnovels at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, we're on iTunes, we're on Twitter at Robotech Novels. All those links you'll find at www.robotechnovels.com. I am your host, JT. For our brand new listeners, welcome aboard. I hope your stay is a long one. Thank you for taking time out of your morning, afternoon, or evening to listen to this crazy kid from Chicago talk some Robotech novels. Welcome aboard once again to everybody who has followed me since August of 2013. It's been a long while, over a year since a brand new episode I can't begin to thank you enough for sticking by the podcast, sticking by the Facebook page, sticking by the website, sticking by JT. It's always been my intention to come back to Robotech, the McKinney Project. I just didn't figure it was going to take this long, but I'm back. I'm excited. We got brand new stuff. It is episode four, The Secret Part One. Yeah, it is a two-parter. And to our brand new listeners, and even to the old listeners, if you want to catch up with what we've done so far, I do have a compilation episode, which... It's basically everything that we've done up to this point, and I'm going to put the link to that compilation episode on the show notes for this brand new episode, and wow, it's great to be back. I'm excited. I'm excited, and I really want to get into the new readings as quickly as possible because... I've always had this rule. I've always had this rule. Never listen. I never listen to a finished podcast. I, I I do the editing. I listen to it there. But when it's all put together and finalized, I never go back and listen to it. And this time I did. One of the rare moments in where I did. And let me tell you, I'm very proud of what you guys are going to be listening to. You guys are really going to enjoy it. Really, you know, it's it's Robotech novels at its best, and I'm I'm very honored to be able to bring it to you guys. Now, a little bit of familiarization and or refamiliarization with the show, Robotech: The McKinney Project. As I said at the beginning, it's a celebration of the Robotech novels. The novels were written as an adaptation of the animated series called Robotech, which debuted in 1985. So the franchise is hitting 30 years this year in 2015. And the goal of the McKinney Project is to tell the story of Robotech through the novels that were written for it. Now, the novels were named under the, uh, were penned under the name Jack McKinney. This was a pseudonym for two gentlemen, New York Times bestselling author Brian Daly and New York Times bestselling author James Lucino. Now, if you're a big Star Wars fan, these names might sound familiar to you. Brian Daly, uh, he was part of the bestselling series, The Han Solo Adventures, and he also wrote the scripts for the radio dramatizations of the original trilogy, A New Hope, uh, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, the ones that played on public radio back in the 80s and 90s. And I'm proud to say that I have a part of my collection. What was cool about those radio dramatizations, it also included some of the original actors from the movies, Billy D. Williams, Anthony Daniels, Mark Hamill. And it was you know, back in the days when there were only three Star Wars movies. It's just incredible to hear. I go back and listen to it again and again. They are available on CD. If you get if you get a chance to pick those up, I definitely highly recommend it. And like I said, Brian Daly wrote the scripts for all three of those radio dramas. James Lucino keeps knocking it out of the park with his Star Wars novels. And he's had kind of they kind of given him really a really neat assignments. He does the backstories to some of the heavy hitters on the Imperial side of things. He wrote uh, Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader. He wrote Darth Plagueis. And he has a brand new novel out that just came out a few months ago, Tarkin, which is the backstory to Grand Moff Tarkin. And another hit. Uh, I've been reading it, and he's got whew, just 
another hit on his hands. And what's awesome about Tarkin is that it's part of the new Disney continuity of Star Wars. Some people may not agree with it, but Disney has gone in a different direction with uh, the Star Wars universe. Everything that's been done for the expanded universe up until before they were the new owners has been put into a legend slot, which is cool because they do recognize the importance of those stories. But the quote-unquote official story for them is what they're doing now, and Tarkin is a part of that. So hopefully that means that Jim is going to continue to bring us uh, new Star Wars uh, novels based on this new continuity, especially now with a new movie coming out the 7th in December of this year. Like I said before... When I listen to the radio dramas, those were the days when there were only three movies. Now we're talking about number seven. Brian Daly, sadly, is no longer with us. He passed away in 1996. I've had the pleasure of uh, interviewing Jim Lucino for a another podcast that I did. And Jim, if you're listening to me right now, you've been you've been such a great mentor in this project. Uh, your words of wisdom in my up and down times have been so they've been so key in this return of the podcast. And yes, Robotech is a patient saga and it's great to be back. And hopefully I can have you on the show for the continuation of this Robotech novels journey. So how do we proceed with telling the Robotech story here on Robotech the McKinney Project? Well, we take selected excerpts from the novels. We're on novel number one, Genesis. And what I do is I take each, you know, selected excerpts, you know, put them all together with music, sound effects. Yeah, you get all, you get the whole enchilada with me when it comes to Robotech novels. And we've been doing that. We did that for three episodes. And now we have the fourth episode with brand new readings and, you know, everything, like I said, sound effects, original music. And we're, you know, we're just moving forward with it. And there's, you know, there's going to be a lot more as we do, as we continue with the show. I'm planning on doing a series of mini podcasts where we take topics from the Robotech novels universe, things like characters, uh, locations, the technologies, the science in, Ro in the Robotech novels, comic connections. Uh, there's some there's some comic series out there that tie in to what was written in the novels. And of course, we'll be doing mini podcasts about the Mecca, which is the which is the bread and butter of Robotech. And you know, I'm looking forward to doing those types of things. And if you have suggestions for a topic or or something that you know you you have questions about the novels, I'll be more than happy to try and give you my best answer. Uh, I've found out that in reading the Robotech novels over and over again, I find myself finding out new things, especially now that I'm going to kind of going into more detail when I do these readings for the show. So, oh, whatever, whatever questions you may have, or, you know, if there's a topic that you'd like for me to talk about in one of the mini podcasts, robotechnovels at gmail.com on the Facebook page or on the website, you can comment there and I'll be more than happy to see what I can do. I just, I, I really want to make this, uh, something very special for me. It's about respecting the legacy that is the Robotech novels because the the Jack McKinney legacy was, is, and always will be the Robotech legacy, and that brings me kind of to a, kind of a to a couple of sensitive topics when it comes to canon. The Robotech novels are canon. That's uh, I'm just going with that. That is the rule of this show. Robotech novels are canon. So are the RPGs. So are the comic books. Everything in Robotech is canon. The origins of Robotech are a little bit special to where I can definitely say that. And that might catch me some flack from others. And if you got something to say about it, you know, you can always contact me at robotechnovels at gmail.com. So I really just want to put that to rest. Robotech novels are canon. When it comes to Harmony Gold, Harmony Gold and their treatment of the Robotech novels, I got a lot to say along those lines, but I'm not going to do it on 
this show. I'm not going to do it on this episode because this is really the return, a happy moment. I'm excited. And I don't really want to, I don't want to ruin the mood with talking about my feelings in terms of uh, Harmony Gold. Who, for those of you that don't know, Harmony Gold are the owners of the Robotech franchise and the people that work within Robotech and their treatment of the Robotech novels. I've got a lot to say along those lines, and I'll probably do that on a future episode. I'm just not going to do it uh, on this one. But yes, I I do have a lot to say. And for those of you that know me, you guys probably know (laughs) a lot that I do have a lot to say along those lines. But um um, one another thing that I got into as I returned for the podcast was into I kind of dabbled into Robotech fan fiction in the form of a radio drama, and that is Special Report. It's it's about twenty minutes long. It's an original audio presentation that ties into what we've already done and what we're doing on this episode, and it's. It, just something I did. I had fun doing it and I hope to do it again. Uh, it's just some stuff. I kind of like to you know, do stuff that ties into the novels, but something that, you know, that's not necessarily from the novel. So I'm going to put the link to special report on the show notes for this episode also along with the compilation episode. And what else is there? I'm excited because I really want to get to the I really want to get to the to the readings themselves. It's really fun. Uh, I had a fun time doing it. I'm not going to say that it's the easiest thing in the world, but I'm I'm having I, I I'm having a great time doing it because once it once it all comes together, the finished product. Oh, I'm so proud of it for this one, and I hope to continue that role. Uh, so without further ado, uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Robotech the McKinney Project, Episode 4, The Secret, Part 1. Chapter 8 Dear Diary, Launch Day's really been fun, even though Jason's making himself a bit of a pest. I met a couple of really dreamy guys, pilots I guess a very tall blonde one, and a cute little dark-haired one. I'm going back out this evening to sing at the Municipal Center picnic. Maybe they'll be there. I might... Hey, I think something's going on outside. More later. From the Diary of Lindman May. Aboard the SDF-1, Captain Henry Global begins to understand the gravity of his situation and the hard choices he will sometimes make. In SDF-1's bridge, Vanessa studied her screens and gave Global a concise report. 24 unidentified objects are descending from space, projected landing point 20 to 30 miles west of Macross Island, sir. They're definitely not ours. Why didn't we detect them before? Vanessa looked to the captain, adjusting her big aviator-style glasses. When the main guns fired, they sapped so much power, our radars malfunctioned. Global reflected on that. That first wave of attack ships, it was just a decoy. Very clever strategy. Lisa, recall Lieutenant Commander Foker's team immediately. Lisa, studying her data displays, said, They're still engaged in combat with the first attack wave, sir. I doubt they can break away without suffering heavy losses. Global nodded stiffly. I understand. Thank you. Vanessa updated. The unidentified crafts have landed in the ocean 25 miles west of us. They seem to have submerged, sir. Global could no longer put off giving Lisa the unpleasant command. Call Prometheus and order them to send out reconnaissance choppers. I already have them awaiting your go-ahead, sir. They'll be on station in five minutes. Mind reader, Global growled, though there was real fondness in his voice. Yes, sir, Lisa said, cheeks coloring a bit. There was only a moment in which to be relieved that Global wasn't rankled at her for anticipating him. Those recon helicopters racing to confront the new alien arrivals were quite capable in their own way, but they weren't Robotech ships and that could be very bad news for the Hilo crews. The two Barracuda naval attack helicopters from Prometheus approached watchfully, encountering only Com C. This is PHP-202, the flight leader radioed. We're approaching target area. Negative sightings of alien craft so far. Lisa's reply came after a burst of static. Roger that, PHP-202. Maintain maximum surveillance. 
bogies are suspected to be submerged. Prepare to deploy sono buoys. Her transmission was just ending as the blue water broke for one, then another, then a half dozen rounded shapes. They bobbed up, shedding water, bulbous and gleaming metallically, with odd projection tubes suggesting old-fashioned magnetic mines. The floating objects turned, the tubes aligning and sighting. All at once they spat lines of dazzling brilliance up at the barracudas. More and more of the rounded shapes bobbed to the surface, joining in the barrage. The flight leader barely blurted out, We're being fired upon! When the crisscrossing beams found the second chopper and blew it to pieces in midair. Let's get out of here! The leader screamed, firing a missile and preparing to run even as the beams converged on his ship. The chopper became a fireball. The pilot's scream was cut off in mid-transmission. Back on the bridge, Lisa reported woodenly. They're gone, sir. Not all the enemies Captain Global faces come in alien form. The hatch slid open and Russo strode onto the bridge, puffing on his cigar and clutching his expensive lapel, seemingly in control. But he was pale and sweating. Lisa could see that and smell it. Under the hail fellow well-met exterior, the senator was so frightened that he was in danger of passing out. Well, Captain, it's lucky for us we got this ship finished in time to fight off the invaders. When do you take off? The curious timing had occurred to Global 2, that the aliens should arrive at this very moment. His own conclusion was that the final activation of the SDF-1's huge, mysterious sealed power plant had somehow drawn the invaders, but he had no time to think about that now. In answer to Russo's question, he simply humphed. Russo's eyebrows beetled. You are ready, aren't you? Why haven't you taken off? What are you waiting for? He glared up at the captain. Global's upper lip curled. You must think I'm out of my mind. I can't take this ship into combat with a crew of raw recruits who've never been in space before. What's more, the ship hasn't even been tested. We don't even know if it'll fly. His commitment to his oath of service made him mad. If you order me to take the SDF-1 up, I'll obey, but it'll be against my better judgment. Claudia and Lisa were standing rigidly at their stations, pretending to take no notice, but Sammy turned to Kim and whispered, Do you think he's serious? I think he means it, Kim nodded after a moment's thought. Sammy gave a toss of her long mane of wheat-colored hair. Wow, she whispered with a tremble. I'm ordering you to take off, Captain, understand? Russo was saying. Kim frowned. What's the matter, Sammy? I thought you wanted to go into space. Sammy's eyes were big, frightened. I do... I think, but all of a sudden it's real. Let it be your responsibility then, Global came back to Russo, because I'm telling you it could be suicide. We don't understand half of SDF-1's systemry yet. Russo's lip was quivering, but he bristled. Sounds to me like you're saying you've no confidence in your crew. Is that what you're telling me, Global? Global looked quickly to Lisa and Claudia, who turned back to their duties to avoid being caught watching the confrontation. I didn't say that. Then what are you saying? Earth has spent untold resources on this Robotech ship, and I don't want to see it destroyed on the ground. Senator, no, Captain, no more excuses. Take off. Very well. As ranking official, you may take that seat over there. We'll be underway in a few minutes. Russo almost swallowed his cigar. Claudia had to stifle her laugh. What? The Senator exploded. No, that is, I have too many other things to do on the ground. You're not to take off until I've left the ship. Is that clear? The terror in his voice was unmistakable. Whatever you say, Senator, Global showed a thin smile. Pulling himself together, Russo beat a hasty retreat. To the bridge gang, he said, Well, girls, we're all depending on you, so don't let us down. The hatch closed behind him. Global stared at the hatch. We aren't ready for combat. We just aren't ready. When we last left our hero, Rick Hunter, he had crash-landed into Macross City. Nothing's changed since then. I wonder where it came from, Jason yelled happily. As they watched, the Cyclopean head tilted forward as heavy servo mechanisms hummed, leaving the torso uppermost. Down in the street, people were exclaiming, Look, it moved its head! It just fell out of the sky and wiped out those buildings! It's as big as a building! See, it's back opened up, Jason cried, pointing. Minmay gasped. A co-pilot's seat rose on a support pillar, lifted it into sight by some inner mechanism. 
it was empty. Jason's brows came together. There's nobody running it! Machinery whirred again, and the post moved higher, raising the first seat to reveal a second mounted below it. In that seat was Rick Hunter. Getting out of his seat, looking down, Rick ignored the fear of the crowd below. What's going on here? What's happened to me? The pilot looks confused, Jason commented. He'd been hoping for someone a little more impressive. Maybe he was injured in the crash, Minmay suggested, but something about the young man was familiar. I must be seeing things, Rick muttered. This used to be a fighter plane. He spotted Minmay and Jason. He recalled the girl from somewhere, but couldn't take time to try to place her just now. Excuse me, but, uh, what is this? He indicated the Veritech. I mean, what does it look like to you? Minmay took a moment to absorb the question. Some kind of robot, I think. Oh, great, Rick sighed relieved. When I got into this thing, it was an aircraft. I thought I'd gone nuts. A convertible airplane? Minmay and Jason both echoed. You must be joking, Minmay added. She thought he wasn't bad looking, however, and wondered how old he was. Not much older than she was, she judged. I'm as puzzled as anybody about it. You're kidding, she said. You're the pilot and you don't even know what it is? No, I'm not a military pilot. I'm just an amateur, satisfied Roy. It's all uh, a big mistake. I'm not supposed to have it. An enemy spy, Jason squawked. Minmay gave him a little shake to quiet him. Jason! Spy, Rick yelped. Look, this was the army's idea, not mine. He shook his head looking down at the battleoid. Look at all the damage. Helicopters were approaching from the distance and traffic was venturing forth again. Will you have to pay for it? Minmay wondered. Rick's stomach felt like it was doing somersaults. Me? I hope not. A truck was insistently blowing its horn down by the battleoid's automobile-sized feet. What? he yelled angrily. The driver hollered up. Get that thing off the road. I have a truckload of military supplies to deliver and I'm in a hurry, Mac. Now move it. The amateur proceeds to try to move his battleoid. Taking the control grips, he panned the screen before him. At least I can see where I'm going, if I can just figure out how to get there. But as the battleoid stirred, preparing to walk, he felt a distinct lack of confidence, something he was unused to. The machine seemed to want more of him than the mere pushing of buttons. The battleoid lifted its foot to step, lost balance when it brought it too high, and swayed, about to topple over backward. The crowd that had gathered to stare at the battleoid panicked and began to bolt, yelling and milling. Rick howled in dismay. Just as the war machine was about to crash into the buildings behind it, back thrusters flared it for a quick, intense burn. The battleoid was pushed back to a precarious balance. Then it went off kilter in the opposite direction, staggering toward the little balcony over the white dragon from which Minmay and Jason watched, open-mouthed. The two saw that it wasn't going to stop. With wails of fright, they turned and fled, just as the battleoid crashed to the wall where they'd been standing, collapsing that whole portion of the building. It came to rest like a drunk who'd pass out across a bar. Minmay coughed and spat out plaster, checking Jason, whom she shielded under her as she went down. Please tell me you're okay. I am, Jason said brightly. Rick's voice came over the Battleoid's PA system. Are you two all right in there? Yes, Minmay yelled. In the cockpit, Rick tilted his helmet back to wipe his brow. Thank goodness. He couldn't bear the thought of hurting an innocent bystander. Besides, the girl was real cute. Chapter 9 Clearly, as Glovel said, SDF-1 was in part a booby trap. He was too busy to think of it, and I wasn't a trained military man, so it didn't occur to us until it was too late that that particular sword might cut both ways. Dr. Emil Lang, Notes on Launch Day It's go time for the SDF-1. Well, almost. From all over the ship, the reports came in. The messages went to every corner of it. It was no longer a question of waiting for a perfect checklist. The Dimensional Fortress was going now. Priority 1 transmission from HQ, Captain Global, Vanessa announced. Armor 1 has completed recovery procedures and is departing to join Armor 10 at Rendezvous Point Charlie. Global grunted acknowledgement and added, Thank you, Vanessa. Claudia, check the reflex furnace and see if we've recovered full power yet. Claudia studied her equipment, 
listened to a brief intercom message and said, Ready condition on furnace power, sir. Once more, Glovo wondered about those enormous, enigmatic, and unprecedentedly powerful engines. Reflex power was a term Lang used. Even his closest assistants scratched their heads when Lang scribbled equations and tried to explain why he called it that and what he thought was going on inside the power plant. Not that it mattered. All Glovo wanted was for the ship to function, to be battle-worthy, for however long it took. A few days, perhaps. Or a day. Just give me one day. Very good. Anti-gravity. Full thrust. Aye, sir, Kim sang out. Full thrust. The mountainous bulk of the SDF-1 trembled and was somehow alive under them. The bridge gang went through individual countdowns and checklists, their voices and those from the intercom overlapping. Then Claudia's rang out clear as an angel's through the ship and over Macross Island. Ten. Nine. Eight. A hundred thoughts and fears and prayers hovered over the island, almost a tangible force in themselves. Two. One. Full power, Global ordered. Activate the anti-gravity control system. The entire city vibrated slightly as the hundreds of thousands of tons of SDF-1 rose from the ship's Gibraltar-like keel blocks, their unique absorption system adjusted to the sudden unburdening. The ship rose smoothly, casting its stupendous shadow across the island. The gyroscope is level, sir, Lisa reported tersely. Global eased back in his chair hoping it was a good omen. Well done. He'd barely said it when a tremor ran through the great ship. Below, he would see the upper hull flight deck actually quake. SDF-1 lurched, then listed hard to port, throwing people from their feet. There was a lot of yelling. The intercom was bedlam. What in blazes is going on? Global thundered, grasping the arms of his chair to keep from being thrown across the compartment. Trim the pitch altitude immediately! It must be the gyroscope, Claudia said, struggling to stay at her station. No, look! Lisa was pointing out at the upper hull flight deck. Bulges had appeared, like volcanic domes being thrust upon against the hardest armor ever developed. The tearing of metal sounded through the SDF-1, like the death throes of dinosaurs. The convexities of armor broke open like overripe fruit, yielding complex cylinders of advanced design system rate. The cylinders, each the size of a railroad tank car, rose majestically into the air, trailing power leads and torn support frameworks. The gravity pods are breaking away! Global rushed up behind Lisa to see for himself. What is it? Oh no, they're tearing away from the ship instead of lifting it! Everywhere it was the same. The physics of the disaster was inflexible. Dozens of gravity pods tore loose, continuing their ascent as they'd been charged to do breaking their way through any structure in their path. Or, to put it in another way, conventional gravity was dragging the SDF-1 down around them. This can't be happening, Global breathed, not so much as distraught by the probable outcome the disaster would mean for himself and his command as by the utter catastrophe it meant for Earth. The ship is losing altitude, Captain, Lisa cried. Global groaned. Please, tell me I'm dreaming this. Pardon, sir, Lisa said. He hadn't realized he'd spoken aloud. It's a nightmare. SDF-1 fell faster, its few operating thrusters unequal to the task of easing it down. All through the ship, people knew that calamity had occurred and waited with varying attitudes to find out what their fate would be. With alarms hooting and wailing, the ship crashed back onto its keel blocks. Under the velocity of even a cushioned fall, the titanic weight made the monolithic blocks crack give way, and collapse or drive themselves down to the earth. But the impact absorption systems built into them saved the ship from greater damage and spared lives, before the blocks were overloaded and defeated. SDF-1 settled down with its hull against the rubble and soil and hardtop, but the ship's back hadn't been broken or its hull breached. The bridge wasn't so different from any other section. Outcries and screams and incoherent yelling. In moments, the noise died away and military discipline reasserted itself. SDF-1 rested at a 15-degree list to port. Is anyone hurt? Global's voice cut through the confusion. Everyone else chimed in that they were uninjured, then shut up. The captain's voice must be heard, uninterrupted at a time like this. And though the bridge gang was untried in space, they knew their duty and they knew their orders. Global strode back toward his seat. I want a full damage report. Give me a computer readout on every system on board. 
the SDF-1 was a fish in a barrel for the time being. He had only minutes in which to act. Yes, sir, the five voices responded as one, giving the words a choral sound. Global looked infinitely tired. They'll never let me forget this. You shouldn't blame yourself for this, sir, Lisa said softly. Global lowered himself into his chair, shaking his head to contradict Lisa. I am the captain, he said simply. Global shouldn't feel so bad. There's Rick Hunter and his Battaloid. Rick grabbed for the controls desperately. At the very least, he had tried to keep this insane metal berserker from doing more damage to the restaurant. The Battaloid lurched, trying to find its balance. Rick tried his best, but couldn't seem to do anything right. Again, it was as if the machine was waiting for him to do something more than merely manipulate controls. It sank down crunching the building until it came to rest with its backside halfway to the street, heels dug into the pavement. When Rick was sure the machine was stable for the time being, he wiped his brow again. Oh, why me? How come these things don't happen to other people? The triumphant Veritech squadron flew in tight formation, making its way back to the Prometheus and the Dimensional Fortress. Roy was in the lead spot, of course. This is Skull Leader, Veritech squadron to SDF-1, and returning to base. We have met the enemy and pretty much cleaned their clocks. They've withdrawn from Earth's atmosphere. Lisa's face was on the display screen. Commendable work, Commander Falker. I'll... She was abruptly moved out of the way by Claudia, who said, Let me talk to him. Roy, how many of them did you shoot down? Only ten this time, he said nonchalantly, but the dogfight would be a legend by that night, the hardest rat racing he'd ever seen. Every millisecond was going to be analyzed and refought a hundred times among the flying officers. You're slipping, Roy, Claudia told him, but her tone wasn't critical at all. Well, don't worry, Claudia, I'll make it up. Something tells me I'm going to get plenty of opportunities. Do you have any word on VT-102? Lisa crowded back onto the screen. That Section 8 case? He landed in Macross City in a battleoid, and he's doing more damage than the invaders. Roy laughed. Thanks, Lisa. Who is he? He's not registered as a fighter pilot. Don't worry, I know him. Well, he sure needs help, Lisa scowled. I'd better go check on him. Roy switched to his TACnet. This is Skull Leader to group. You guys head on back to Prometheus. I've got some business to take care of in town. Captain Kramer, you take him home. Will do, boss. Roy peeled off from the formation, and increasing his wing sweep for higher speed, plummeted for Macross City. I should have known better than to leave him alone, he muttered. People in the street spotted the approaching aircraft. The skull insignia was well known, but things had a way of being unexpectedly dangerous today, and nobody was up for taking any more chances. Everybody sprinted for cover. Roy switched his ship to Guardian mode for the descent, the mechanoid eagle configuration that allowed for more control in the tight quarters of a city street. It settled in on the bright blue flare of its foot thrusters, chain gun cradled in its right arm. In another moment, Roy's ship had mechamorphosed to battleoid. Its shoulder structure gave it a look of immense brute power, like a football player. Rick felt like rubbing his eyes. I must be dreaming this. I don't believe it. Jason, crouched with Minmay behind a fallen cornice, yelped, That airplane became a robot too! Amazing, Minmay murmured. It was all so strange and almost magical. It made her wonder what the young pilot's name was. A few small repairs and you can take that battleoid back into action, Royd said blithely. What are you talking about? Rick yelled over the net. I don't even know what this thing is. And if you think I'm qualified to operate it, just take a good look around the neighborhood. But he watched his screen in utter fascination as Roy's war machine shifted its weapon from its right arm, drew out a long, thick band as sturdy as a heavy cargo sling, and settled the weapon over its left shoulder, all as casually as an infantryman going to sling arms. Rick gaped. No control system in the world could do that. Maybe a battery of computers, if the sequence was worked out precisely in advance. 
but what Roy had done had more of an on-the-spot look to it. It brought to mind what Roy had told Rick about the Robotech flight helmet, the thinking cap. You just don't pilot a Robotech ship, you live it. If you can fly a jet, you can operate a battleoid, Roy began. I'll tell you what to do. Gross movements are initiated by manuals. The legs are guided by your foot pedals, for instance. Which foot pedals, Roy? I've got about 50 controls in here. 57 if you want to get technical. But that's not the important part. Just button up and listen. I'll explain while I'm making repairs. The Skull Insignia Battleoid extruded metal tentacles, tool servos, waldos, and a host of other advanced repair apparatus. In moments, the one Robotech war machine was repairing the other. Welding sparks jumped and damaged components were replaced. The secret's that helmet, Roy said. You generate general movements or sequences with your controls, but the robotechnology takes its real guidance straight from your thoughts. You've got to think your ship through the things you wanted to do. Rick couldn't help being skeptical in spite of everything he'd seen. Now you're going to tell me these junk heaps are alive? Close enough for me, Roy said noncommittally. Although you're going to have to make up your own mind about that. We still don't understand the power source, the same power source that runs SDF-1. But we know that somehow, it's not just a blind physical process. It's involved with life forces somehow, with awareness with mind, if I'm not getting too fancy for you. I think you're bucking for a medical discharge, mental category. Roy chuckled. See for yourself. Just pay attention and I'll tell you how it's done. Chapter 10 When it comes to testing new aircraft or determining maximum performance, pilots like to talk about pushing the envelope. They're talking about a two-dimensional model. The bottom is zero altitude, the ground. The left is zero speed. The top is max altitude and the right maximum velocity, of course. So, the pilots are pushing that upper right-hand corner of the envelope. What everybody tries not to dwell on is that that's where the postage gets canceled, too. The Collected Journals of Admiral Rick Hunter for the next few minutes, Roy repaired Rick's down machine while he briefed his friend on the secrets of operating robotechnology. These battleoids are classified top secret, he finished as he made the last reconnection. And you've got to trust me on this one. There is a reason for it. All the repair tackle had neatly withdrawn itself into the Skull Battleoid's huge body. There, that ought to do it, Roy said. Now switch on energy and depress those foot pedals slowly, like I told you. Rick did and thought his way through the maneuver as Roy had instructed. He focused his mind's eye on the act of getting back to its feet. Something at the other end of the helmet's pickup sensed and understood. Carefully, Rick Hunter's red-trimmed battleoid levered itself up, gaining its feet to stand shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with Roy's. That's it, Roy said. See how easy it is? More than easy. It was exaltation. It felt as if there was a feedback or a reciprocation mechanism in the control systems. Rick felt as if he were the battleoid. Several stories tall, indestructible, armed with the most advanced weapons the human race had developed, with the power of flight in a way that indeed made the Mockingbird seem primitive, on metal shot fists capable of punching their way through a small mountain. Rick drew a deep breath, dizzy with the feeling. Wow, you learn fast, don't you? said a voice from street level over the battleoid's external pickups. Rick looked down at Minmay and Jason. He automatically guided the Robotech machine so that it leaned down toward the girl. Thanks. A voice from the distance. Minmay's Aunt Lena called. Minmay, Jason, come on. Minmay waved up at Rick. See you later. We're being evacuated. She trotted off with Jason in tow. Long, slim legs moving with unconscious grace. Off the shore of Macross Island, the breakers came in, crashed and sent up high fountains of foam, and the waters pulled back to regroup yet again for their eternal assault on the beach. But the next breaker brought a different kind of assault. Zentradi battle pods launched straight up out of the water on their thrusters, scout versions, officer versions, and the standard models configured to carry a variety of heavy weapons and equipment. Their biped design. The legs articulated backward resembled that of an ostrich. They landed on the shore and began advancing in long leaps, like monstrous kangaroos, sensors swinging for information, weapons ready for the kill. They arranged themselves in skirmish formation and covered miles in seconds. 
Soon they loomed across a ridgeline, looking down on Macross City. At Britai's command post, the report was patched through. The recon and battle pods have landed, Commander. We're ready to attack. Exeter's protruding, pinpoint-pupiled eyes swung to regard his lord. Britai leaned to a communications pickup. Attention all gunnery crews. Prepare to give covering fire to the recon assault group. The command ready all guns and subsidiary orders rang through the armada. The long muzzles were run out and ranged in. In their sights was Macross City. Meanwhile, still in Macross City... We better get moving, Rick, Roy told his friend. We still have a war to fight. I'm still pretty unsure of myself with all these robot controls. I'm not ready for combat. Not robot, Robotech, Roy corrected automatically. Look, pull the control mark G and we'll switch to Guardian configuration. Rick complied, muttering, What the heck is a Guardian? Here goes! As the Veritech shifted and mechamorphosed, converting to a bird of prey war machine, Roy explained, The Guardian controls operate almost exactly like those of the fighter plane. You can fly it without any problems. I've heard that before, Rick reminded him. Ritai studied the fire mission computer models. He gave a grudging nod of satisfaction. All guns standing by for bombardment, Commander Britai, a tech reported. Good. Level everything in the path of the assault forces, but be careful not to damage that battle fortress. I want to take it intact. Once the battle pods had established the beachhead, his plan could be implemented, and Zor's masterpiece would belong to the Zentradi. Then let the Robotech masters beware, Britai thought. Lead elements of the Armada opened fire. Those farther back in the dense cloud of warships couldn't fire without the risk of hitting another Zentradi vessel. A torrent of alien bolts rained down like a hellish springstorm in a kill zone that encircled the dimensional fortress. Buildings seemed to melt like candles in a blast furnace, riddled by thousands of narrow, high-density beams collapsing in clouds of plaster and concrete dust. Death was everywhere among the CD teams, emergency personnel, anti-looting squads, and others who'd bravely remained behind. Dying screams and the shrieks of the wounded rose on the bolt-splashed heat waves. Zentradi battle pods watched it all impassively from their vantage point. Wingless, headless armored ostriches bristling with sensors and heavy weapons. The shelters and the masses waiting to enter them were noted, but those were of no importance. Ritai was only interested in the SDF-1. They're invading the city! Rick yelled from his Guardian's cockpit. It was only by accident he realized that he'd crash-landed outside the kill zone. Yeah, it looks like it was evacuated just in time, Roy said, surveying the blasted landscape from his higher vantage point in the battleoid. He also had updates on the refugee situation and the various assembly points. If you're worried about your girlfriend, we could go check on her. Roy shifted to Guardian mode and showed Rick how it was done. The two Guardians skimmed away like jet-powered skaters, foot thrusters riding them on a blasting carpet mere inches off the ground, safe from most of the enemy fire. Meanwhile, on the bridge of the SDF-1... Do we have a fix on where that bombardment is coming from? Global snapped. A fleet of warships, numbers uncertain but very, very high. In lunar orbit, Vanessa told him promptly. Global rubbed his jaw. Beyond the range of our missiles. Lisa looked up from her monitors. Captain, an alien assault force is approaching from the east. Range 8 miles. It was her job and her prerogative, so she added, We need air support, sir. Global gave a quick nod and shook his cap a little. Call for it. The Zentradi battle pods leapt from the cliffs around the city and began their fast assault. They moved with the high speed and precision of advanced robotechnology, hopping nimbly or skating quickly at ground level on their foot thrusters. At the outskirts of the city, they opened weapons ports and missiles racked cover plates, then opened fire. Missiles left scorching, corkscrewing trails in the air, converging on SDF-1. Pulsed laser beams strobed and flicked at targets of opportunity. The initial barrage met with strong defenses. Most of the missiles were jammed by ECM techs or intercepted by counter-missiles. The beams were either repulsed by SDF-1's highly reflective surface or failed to do more than warm the great ship's armor at that range and in those atmospheric conditions. Still, the situation was about to get grim if Global couldn't change the tactical equations. This is SDF-1, Lisa transmitted calmly. A 
Attention all strike elements. We are under attack and need immediate assistance. Incoming Veritex, switch to battleoid mode. The tech nets were silent. The situation seemed hopeless. Lisa considered the fact that, in spite of all the beliefs she'd embraced, perhaps humans weren't destined to rule Earth. Just then, Global played his whole card. Through a sky crowded with spherical missile explosions, the Veritex swooped with supreme confidence, dodging the intense ordnance eruptions all around them. And we end on a cliffhanger of sorts, which we will conclude on our next episode, uh, The Secret Part 2. It was a lot of readings for this block, so I had to divide it into two parts, and we'll, con we'll have the conclusion of these readings on our next episode. Now, some of the music that you heard on this episode was composed by the talented Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech.com. Some awesome music. The titles included Controlled Chaos, Face Off, Mighty and Meek, Enter the Maze, and Decisions. All of these were licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. And if you are a podcaster and you want some great royalty-free music, go check out Incompetech.com. I'll put the link to it over on the show notes for this episode. And... That's it, guys. We've come to the end of the show. As I said, I listened to the finished product, and I'm so proud. I'm so proud of how it came out, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you made it this far, thank you so much. I, I'm very honored that you did. If you have any comments, uh, shoot them over my way, whether that be at the website, www.robotechnovels.com, at our Facebook page, on Twitter. You can email me, robotechnovels at gmail.com. You can go on iTunes, give us some ratings, give us some comments. And I'm, I'm happy to be back. And I want to close the show with some thank yous. I want to thank Brian Daly. Uh, even though he's no longer with us, he's a big part of the show. A very special thank you to Lucia Robson, who is his widow and the love of his life. I've gotten to know Brian more through Lucia, and you know, I'm, I hope Brian is smiling wherever he's at. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very honored to get to know Brian through you, Lucia. So a big shout out to you, a big shout out to Jim Lucino. Uh, like I said, you've, your words of wisdom, your words of wisdom have kept me on the straight and narrow through the through some, through, through some tough times. And uh, I, I appreciate all those words and I'm really happy to be doing this and for however long I do it. I, my goal is to, my goal is to do this through all 21 novels, but I know that if I decide not to do it anymore, I mission accomplished. I feel like I, I've, I've done it. I can scratch it off the bucket list, but you know something? I'm having fun doing it, so I'm going to continue doing it. But uh, Jim, if you're listening to this, a uh, big shout out to you and a shout out to all of you that have listened to this podcast. And the very last shout out and probably, you know, a very special one is to the late Carl Masick, who was the producer of the Robotech animated series. And if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be doing this. Jim and Brian wouldn't have written the novels and I wouldn't be doing this podcast. And Carl is no longer with us. He passed away uh, during the 25th anniversary of Robotech five years ago. But I know that he would have wanted the celebration to continue. And Carl, thank you so much. Thank you for what you brought to a generation of fans. And 30 years, 30 years, and you still have a worldwide fandom that remember those, those simpler times when uh, that 85-episode animated series that made all of us jumping down with, with joy. And even until this day, it brings us all joy. So... Thank you, Carl Masick. And guys, that's it for me. I'm not going to give you a date for the new episode. I've learned the hard way that if I give dates out, it never turns out the way that I want it. And I really, I, I feel bad because I don't want to, I don't want to get you guys all hyped up. And then all of a sudden I don't, you know, there's no episode. So 
Stay on the lookout at www.robotechnovels.com, our Facebook page. You guys know where I'm at, and I'll be putting up updates, and uh, I want to get the next episode out as quickly as possible. I'm just not going to give you guys a definitive date, but hopefully it will be soon. And as we go down the line, I'm actually going to reach out. One of one of my goals for this podcast is to actually have you, the audience, do the readings for the show. And we'll talk about that more on our next episode because like I said, it's something that I really want. I really want to get you guys involved in this because uh, I do have a few people that have already already done readings and I really want to get those up there as soon as possible. But we'll talk about that more on our next episode. So until then, guys, remember, uh, you know, I'm happy to be back and just you know something? Go out there and grab a good book, curl up and read it. I think that's one of the lost arts in this time. We're so much into the digital age and the internet. Grab a book, read it, enjoy it, immerse yourself in it and have fun. Okay. You guys take care. I will be talking to you soon. For the latest on Robotech, the McKinney Project, go to www.robotechnovels.com and also visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash robotechnovels. Robotech is a trademark of Harmony Gold. Yeah, I know, that royally sucks.